This is Podbridge, connecting the Middle East, the United States, and the world. Welcome to Podbridge, the podcast that looks at what is unexpected, overlooked, and significant in the rapidly changing relationship between the Middle East, the United States, and the world. Not too long ago, it was common to think of the oil-producing nations of the Middle East as part of the problem behind the global climate crisis rather than the solution. But today, that's changing. Recently, the United Arab Emirates announced a goal of achieving net-zero climate emissions by the year 2050. It's an aggressive target designed to help drive a transformation of the country's economy. U.S. Presidential Climate Envoy John Kerry recently addressed this change. My heartfelt congratulations and thanks to the UAE for its incredibly important new Net Zero 2050 strategic initiative. As the UAE prepares to celebrate its 50th anniversary as a nation later this year, this mid-century Net Zero goal sets out a very powerful vision for your next exciting decades ahead. On this episode of Podbridge, we explore the thinking behind this transformative change and how it will have an impact far beyond the Middle East. Our discussion today is drawn from a recent Atlantic Council event on the COP26 meeting currently taking place in Glasgow, Scotland. The host was Randy Bell of the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center. He was joined by UAE Minister of Climate Change and Environment, Mariam Almahari, and by UAE Ambassador to the United Nations, Lana Nuseba. So the UAE's goal of net zero by 2050 is the first in the Middle East and North Africa, and as well as the first in OPEC, and has raised quite a few eyebrows. Your government has described the goal as a new economic development model. What does that mean in practice and what prompted this announcement? And then how are you going to proceed with implementation, which is really the tough part of this? Thank you. Thank you, Randy. And, and again, thank you to the Atlantic Council for hosting us. And it's lovely to be here with my colleague, uh, Her Excellency Ambassador Lana, on this panel. Um, before I answer your question, Randy, I, I think it's really important for the listeners to know that um, we're this actually came as a very natural step for us. Why? Because we've already been working on so many steps in the past years. First of all, if we think back 15 years ago, um, our, our leadership already recognized that an energy transition is coming up and that it's important for us. You know, we, we like to be global problem solvers and, uh, to be basically on the peak of the wave and not under the wave, it was really important that we say, you know, we need to diversify our economy. And one of the things was to actually invest in renewable energy. And so with that, if we look at um, uh, what we've done so far, we've invested about 40 billion US dollars so far in clean energy projects just in the UAE in the past years. So we are operating three of the largest incapacity uh, lowest cost solar parks. Uh, we are the first country in the region to actually um, operate as a zero carbon nuclear energy uh, plant. And once that's fully operational, it will cut down a quarter of our greenhouse gas emissions in the power generation sector. We have the region's first commercial um, scale carbon capture uh, utilization and storage network. Currently the capacity is 800,000 tons a year with expansions already underway. As many of you know, uh, Mazdar City is also here in the UAE, it was established in 2006 
basically acting as a catalyst for the energy renewable energy transition. Uh, the international community who have supported us in hosting IRENA here in the UAE, um, it basically shows that this is also um, a symbol and, and a token of, of uh, our pioneering efforts in the transition um, uh, when it comes to, to the energy transition. Um, not forgetting that we're actually the first country in the region that also signed and ratified the Paris Agreement. We've submitted already uh, two NDCs. And so with that in mind, it is actually a natural step for us to say, okay, now we're ready to actually pledge for the target of net zero uh, by 2050. Um, and in doing so, we actually took a really a, a holistic approach. So we had key uh, ministries, we had the private sector, so key private sec sector stakeholders, not only the large uh, um, private sector entities, but also uh, small and medium-sized businesses. The youth also played a role. And we basically looked at all sectors, um, energy, economy, industry, um, and uh, infrastructure, transport, waste, agriculture, environment, and made or uh, basically developed a framework of how we could reach uh, to, to this uh, target. So, so for us, this framework is in place. And now we will go into the details of de detailing out the plans that we need to be able to reach uh, this, this goal. So what I basically want to say with this is it's a historic move for us but it's actually a very natural step for us as well. And it actually shows the, the progressive vision of, of our leadership and that we see ourselves as, as global responsible citizens. Yeah, that, that, that's, it's fantastic. And the ambition is, is really remarkable. Um, you know, one of the, the main reasons there's so much excitement about the UAE's net zero announcement is that the country is one of the world's most important hydrocarbon producers. Um, but but because of this, um, many people also see an implicit tension between oil and net zero. How how do you see the UAE's oil industry figuring into the net zero by 2050 goal? I think what's really important, Randy, is that people should realize this is a transition. A transition meaning um, we can't just switch off the tap. There is still a global demand for oil and gas. And so as we ramp up clean and renewable energy, we'll also be ramping down oil and gas production. But at the moment, there is still a global need, so we'll, we will still be supplying. The important thing is that um, if we do, or whoever is supplying hydrocarbons, it's important that it's as, as low carbon as possible. And uh, this is where the UAE really has a competitive advantage and that we are probably amongst the top hydrocarbon providers with the lowest uh, um, carbon, um, uh, carbon intense um, that, that is available in the world today. Um, not also forgetting that um, also uh, our large uh, national oil and gas companies such as ADNOC, they've also put targets forward committing to uh, reducing their greenhouse gas emissions by 25% by 2030. So um, each sector is, is committing, each sector is, is going on this new trajectory. I like to call it new trajectory because in a way, uh, this, this, this initiative is actually taking us on a new economic tra trajectory. We see it as an opportunity 
uh, for new skills, for new investments, uh, for new industries, and really attracting people to come and live in the UAE and, and, and go with us on this sustainable journey. Thank you. And it, I think that's it's so important, as you say, that it's a transition. And what we're seeing right now with the energy crunch globally um, is, is that we're not paying attention enough to the transition and that the UAE is a responsible provider of energy where people need it. It's such, a, such an important role to be playing. Um, I think the other key point is that even in a net zero scenario, such as IEAs, there's 24, 25 million barrels of oil demand per day out in 2050. So there's still going to need to be oil in the mix. And you're, so the, the low carbon production is, is really, really key. Um, so thank you. It's, it's really wonderful. I want to turn now to Ambassador Nusaiba. Um, I'd love to talk about the, the foreign policy side of the climate equation. So again, we we're talking about UAE's hydrocarbon production. Um, been quite a unique, UAE has been quite a unique international player on climate change. You're the host of, of IRENA, the International Renewable Energy Agency, with 184 members. Uh, the UAE held the preparatory meetings for Ban Ki-moon's and uh, Antonio Gutierrez climate summits. You also, UAE is also a major underwriter for renewable energy projects, as the minister described. Um, and then in January, the UAE is joining the UN Security Council and has become a prominent voice on the issue of climate security. So what is the UAE's vision and strategy as it joins the Security, security Council, and how does climate play a role in that? Rani, thank you so much for hosting us. And it's great to be uh, with my close colleague, Marima Meheri, on this panel, uh, who's recently taken on, in addition to the important food security portfolio, the really important climate change and environment portfolio. And it again shows how we think in the UAE, interlinking uh, issues that have been separated in many systems for so long. And of course, um, COP26 makes this year a really major moment for climate action. Uh, leading up to the subsequent COPs. And as you also know, uh, we are in the process of hosting and hopefully securing uh, our bid to host COP28 in the UAE. And we'd like to see COP26 very much lead uh, to that process and to that to the outcomes that we all want to see. And I think this is, again, as you said, there are so many um, evolutions in the energy and climate space that this is a very different conversation to one than perhaps we'd have even had a year ago because of these structural changes that are taking place. So Miriam's described some of them, mitigating greenhouse gases, as we've discovered in the UAE, is now cheaper uh, than not mitigating in many situations like with solar. Uh, and then also where I sit in the UN in New York, for many countries, this is now a very emotional issue. Uh, it really is a uh, priority. We're not just reading about uh, climate disasters, but many of the countries that I sit around tables with are experiencing them pers personally in their countries. Um, so uh, small islands, arid countries, different climate disasters that are impacting. And so the, the sort of the voices are getting louder that climate security is something that we need to address as a global peace and security issue. And of course, at the midst of all of this, a horrible pandemic that's really made it clear how interconnected all of these issues are and how much stronger the multilateral system needs to be to, uh, to respond to it. Um, so I think when we talk about this, we talk about the drivers of uh, a progressive climate policy for the UAE. Um, we need to, of course, understand, as you just said, Randy, 
where different corners of the world are coming from. Development is a, you know, seen as a fundamental right of nation states. They have the right to develop. They have the right to become stronger uh, economies. Um, and yet from the UAE model, and I think this is where we exist in the space of trying to show alternatives by doing, um, we, it looks counterintuitive at the outset that a country like the UAE would champion things like renewable energy, net zero, climate security, but it's actually our way of demonstrating uh, that we need uh, counterintuitive, what seems like a counterintuitive approach at this moment. So at the 30,000 foot level, um, obviously our vision for all of us, particularly post pandemic, is that we need to increase global prosperity, global security, through climate action. That is the prism now, one of the key prisms through which we are looking at increasing global prosperity, increasing global security. Uh, and so investing in renewables, this climate smart agriculture that we talk about, uh, the areas that Miriam outlined, all of this in our view, as we enter the Security Council, will generate wealth, jobs, and therefore stability, and therefore is an integral part of the peace and security conversation. And of course the inaction scenario, is the exact opposite. The inaction scenario is displacement, resource competition, social stress, uh, protests, uh, fragile states. And so countries that are slow uh, to embrace a low carbon transition become economic losers, worsening fragility, and that makes the job of the Security Council and the UN harder. So that is the, the sort of pitch we are making along with other countries when we enter the Security Council, the climate security is genuinely something that needs to be addressed as an integral part of hardcore discussions as they are described of traditional peace and security issues. Uh, and I think in the UAE, this also stems from our long tradition of horizon scanning, um, which is the mindset behind some of the cabinet appointments you've seen. We have a minister of youth uh, uh, who was appointed at the age of 22 because we actually wanted to have the perspectives of youth at the government table. And this was the quickest way to integrate those voices. Um, and so that kind of horizon scan, a minister of AI, because we know that the development of AI is going to define um, the future in terms of development of countries. So I think that our leadership in a similar vein to those uh, cutting edge issues also took this view about 15 years ago that climate change was going to fundamentally alter global dynamics. Um, so the economy, the politics, uh, the security, um, the food is all interlinked. And I think that we've also seen that although we are able to make these incredible gains as a country, um, social gains, education, health, uh, and from selling hydrocarbons, um, we are not, we were not 15 or 20 years ago thinking about surviving those major transitions. So we want to be on the crest of that wave, not under it. And I think that's the decision that we took 15 years ago to explain why this seemingly counterintuitive policy became such a driving part of our foreign policy and our perspective globally. Um, and so with IRENA, which you've mentioned, and 184 countries in Abu Dhabi looking at this issue, um, we think we, we've really been at the forefront of these changes and, and predicting these changes and trying to prepare the resilience of our society and the society of, of countries around us uh, for them. Having said all of that, the pace of climate change, uh, I think, is far scarier in many ways than people predicted 15 years ago. And that's why I think you're seeing this acceleration now in the international community. And we certainly see it in our humanitarian aid portfolio. So we've seen one climate disaster after the next. We've spent billions of dollars over the last decade on relief uh, for climate disasters or, or on conflicts that are 
inevitably worsened uh, and unequivocally worsened by the impacts of climate change. And so many of the communities that we're working with are in experiencing climate change as a form of violence. Uh, and that's not to be underestimated. And the testimonials are really haunting on this. So if I talk to a senior diplomat from Kiribati, uh, they told us how a king tide ripped through her house without any warning while she was home alone with her infant grandchild. And she was holding onto the doorframe with one arm. If we talk to diplomats from the Lake Chad region, um, you know, there are these emptied villages where the remaining residents worry about how to feed their children as the crops fail yet again. Um, two of our big renewable energy projects in Antigua and Barbuda and the Dominica morphed into reconstructions of their power systems after hurricanes completely wiped them out. Uh, and they wiped out vast sw swaths of the GDP in the job market. So all of our indications in our horizon scanning, unfortunately, without being too much of a doomsayer, is that these trends are going to increase. And we're particularly aware of that in the Middle East, where we have the least water and the highest temperatures. So bringing this all back to our foreign policy, I think it's twofold. First, we really need to speed up mitigation. Uh, and it's a powerful driver, uh, whether we like it or not, uh, conv convincing countries that climate action is actually good for their economies, I think is the best case argument that we can make. So it's carrots alongside sticks. Um, and I think every country has these unique circumstances, but we hope that our net zero goals provide the diverse proof point um, for climate action. Uh, and of course, everyone has to work their own way uh, to delivering on the Paris Agreement. Uh, and, and I think you're seeing these, but this is something that I think generates high returns and we need to make the, the case for that. And the investment case for us in, in any case is clear. Um, and second, of course, there has to be more multilateral spending on adaptation. Um, and it needs to be made through, uh, we've already won the debate to a degree that it needs to be made through a gender lens, but now we need to win the debate that it needs to also be made through a security lens. That uh, spending on adaptation is actually a security issue. And we used to think of adaptation as basically in, in the UAE is turning the AC up higher uh, a little bit every summer. Um, but we now see communities falling apart because we are not moving fast enough. And I think there's a straight line for us from these circumstances of distress and instability. So how do we do that international public financing to help these communities, to help women specifically, and to sort of help this spiral into humanitarian situations and conflicts. And that really has to be prioritized, particularly for uh, the multilateral uh, financial institutions like the World Bank, uh, as well as for the UN agencies and programs. And so we're really vocal on these two issues because we see firsthand both the opportunities and the risk. Um, and we also see that the timeline is getting shorter and shorter. And I think this dual economy, security, gender approach uh, on climate is really a pillar of our foreign policy as well as our multilateral engagement. And you'll hear us talking a lot about it as we join the council on January 1st. Wow, thank you. I mean, that's a really comprehensive answer and um, lays out a really ambitious agenda, um, tying climate and foreign policy together. Really, really fascinating. I wanna dig deeper though into climate at the Security Council itself. It's a very visible topic and a there's a split between some of the most powerful countries in the council on whether climate change is a real threat or not necessarily a threat to peace and security. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, many countries, especially the small island states, low-lying nations, uh, many developing countries are saying climate change is an existential threat expected to destroy infrastructure, food, displace populations, create uh, an atmosphere of fear and fragility, all of which you just described in detail. Um, so 
as you say, the UAE is, is really championing climate security and made it one of the priorities. How, how do you get climate security um, into the conversation at the Security Council? What do you hope to achieve by that? Well, look, this is a, obviously an ongoing debate that's happening right now. There is a, uh, a draft uh, Security Council resolution that's being discussed by member states that's being championed by Ireland and Niger, uh, that it will be the first time that the issue of climate security is put in a UN Security Council resolution like that. There have been discussions. I think there's been an evolution of the subject on the council, uh, but we're not ready uh, quite yet. The time is not as ripe uh, as it could be. And I think countries are working behind the scenes to try and see if this is the moment with all the cops coming up and the urgency of the UN reports that shows that how far off our targets from Paris we are. Uh, to see if we can generate some action around this. And, you know, I, maybe I will invite some criticism here, but I'm going to say that I think climate security as a concept is maybe less controversial than it appears on the surface. And I do also want to say, although this is a climate security and energy discussion, that the geopolitics and the backdrop always influence uh, all of these thematic issues on the council. And the climate is no less uh, of a, an arena, if you like, uh, for proxy disagreements around bigger geostrategic issues. Uh, so just as a backdrop, I think when people at the UN say um, climate security, there's actually a broad acceptance that they're referring to the ability of climate impacts to destabilize communities and countries. I mean, that's the, the baseline of it. And, and therefore a bet conflict um, and reduce the ability of a state to safeguard its territory uh, and that is the fundamental uh, purpose of a state, of a government, uh, the security of its borders, et cetera. Uh, and so, you know, this can be manifested in a number of different climate uh, relevant ways, or, you know, rising sea levels, destroying food production or literally changing the landmass of a country. Um, but I think we're at a point today, uh, and I'm going out a little bit on a limb on this one, where very few people doubt that there is impact. There is impact from a drought on a fragile or conflict-afflicted region, that there is impact. We don't quite draw a linear line, maybe in some countries, that that uh, event, that climate event, leads directly to instability and war, but there is impact. And it's about measuring and the scale and the spectrum of that impact, where I think some of the disagreements lie in terms of how the Security Council should address it. Um, and so no one thinks that the UN is about to send in peacekeepers to enforce the Paris Agreement or take over the rainforests. Um, well, at least no one right now at the Security Council thinks that. Um, and, and we'll see how the, the discussion evolves. But at the same time, uh, I think people understand uh, and appreciate the uh, impact that climate has in fragility or in a conflict. So that's the emerging uh, and welcome consensus um, that we see emerging, that climate change undermines security in many specific situations. And this is allowing the slow seeping, if you like, of climate language into Security Council resolutions on places like the Sahel and Somalia without objection from uh, the council members who would traditionally say, well, let's let's hold back. and We don't want to start discussing everything. There are other bodies and other agencies to talk about these issues, to address these issues. Those are the forums. This is the forum dealing with peace and security. So we should be very focused on that. I think that's that's now broadening in their perspective. And of course, the sticking point is going to be what the Security Council can actually do um, given its mandate versus the mandates of entities like the UNFCCC, the World Food Programme, the, uh, the World Bank. And so I think there's 
a lot of really good ideas on the table. And there are some of these ideas are reflected in the draft resolution um, about better risk analysis capacity. Um, so enhanced early warning systems, reinforcing peacekeeping missions when climate disasters strike or are predicted. That all sounds like common sense to most of us. Um, and so we're really proud to be part of the two groups currently brainstorming and advocating for the council's responsiveness based on the data, based on better information, based on better risk analysis. Um, so we're members of the uh, group of friends on climate and security, uh, which the US recently joined alongside 60 other countries. Uh, and we're hoping we put ourselves forward to co-chair the council's members subsidiary body on climate security in 2023, which is also the year we hope to host um, COP. 28, where we hope to drive the conversation forward, not in a polarizing way, uh, and not in a way that allows for some of these geopolitical tensions that I've mentioned to play out, but in a way that really tries to close the gap on our understanding, basing it on the data. And there are some really low-hanging fruit that we can all uh, aim to achieve. So we've recently launched a work stream um, with the UN, with Norway, and with IRENA to transition peacekeeping missions to renewable energy. Currently, there I think about 80% relies on diesel energy. You know, low-hanging fruit, it's, it's a bit niche, but it's a pretty compelling aspect of climate security. Um, and renewable energy cuts costs, operational costs. It reduces um, the risk of attacks on fuel convoys, uh, which is another inherent security risk in peacekeeping operations. And it basically provides this much-needed, longer-term sustainable infrastructure for the communities that the peacekeepers are there uh, to help. So I think some of these partnerships are going to really come to fruition during our council term. And it's already resulted in the heads of the biggest peacekeeping missions signing a compact to identify three renewable energy projects each in 2022. So getting uh, commitments like that, I think is really, really important. Um, and of course, you know, there's a number of other areas I think we can do more quotas uh, in the same way that we have gender advisors and specific missions, why not climate advisors? Um, humanitarian and development agencies really need to better integrate the climate prism and the climate security prism at that with the same urgency as they look at other security threats when they run a peacekeeping operation. Uh, and of course, for the UAE, the area that specifically concerns us in our, our, our region is, of course, food security. Um, so I think when we talk about that, we're also talking about the practical steps to address uh, some of these realities and some of these threats. So I think the Security Council can play a part it can't offer the full solution, nor would we want it to. There are many other agencies and mechanisms, uh, but we do need to be holistic about our approach. And I think going onto the council and seriously discussing uh, this climate security resolution and looking at it seriously, the pros and the cons and where member states have concerns and where those concerns can be addressed, I think is a, is a really good first step in the right di direction to broadening the security prism uh, through which we traditionally view peace and security issues on the Security Council. It's a story of sweeping transformation that's just beginning and of leadership from the Middle East that will have an impact on not just the global environment, but on people worldwide benefiting from these innovative new initiatives. We'll keep following this here at Podbridge in upcoming episodes. This has been Podbridge, produced with the support of the Embassy of the United Arab Emirates in the U.S. For more information about the Podbridge Project, follow us on Twitter at UAE USA United or visit our website at podbridge.com.